0: morning, church. I'm Michael Zachary, and this is my son, John. Uh, together with my wife, Fran, and my other younger son, Lucas, we've been attending TCC for about five years now. I invite you to please stand for the ring of God's word. Today's scripture is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 10 to 18. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, Here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, church. For those of you who don't know Michael, um, he was just affirmed uh, by our congregation as one of our elders, so if you ever see the name Michael on an elders list, uh, that is him. Thanks for reading scripture this morning. What Pastor Norb failed to mention is that that the church has historically fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays, so if you fast on Friday, you're standing uh, with the church history tradition as well, so... This is fun. That's good. Well, it's good to be together this morning. Thank you to those uh, who are joining us online as well. It's good to have you with us. Uh, for those of you who don't know me or if we haven't met before, I am uh, Pastor Adam and on staff here about seven years. And it's a joy uh, to open God's word uh, to us this morning. In 1995, um, Joan Osborne released her first record. And the hit single off that record was asking the question, what if God was one of us. The song, One of Us. And you can probably, as I say those words, some of you might have the lyrics start running through your head. What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. And with great humor and I think depth of thought, this song kind of speaks to something that goes on inside of us as humans. It's this longing for God to be very near. It's a longing To find God as one who is entirely relatable, it's a longing that God would be one who is fully knowable, that he would be physical, that if I was looking for him, he would have an address and I'd actually be able to track him down and knock on his door to say hello. And I think when we think about that song and that question, what if God was one of us and And kind of those feelings or thoughts that it builds up in us, I I think sometimes we can relate to them. It's easy for us in life to feel like God is somehow distant or absent. When we're going through difficulties, when we're going through suffering and we have this this idea of a God, a deity, this this one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and we just wish that he would reach out and work change in our circumstances or reach out and work change in the process of world history, and we wonder where he is. We wonder why he's not doing what we think he should do. And we feel this angst about the absence of God. There's a big problem with Joan Osborne's song, though, isn't there? The question that is posed, what if God was one of us, is ignoring the reality that God, in fact, became one of us. And the person Of Jesus Christ. God is one of us in a lot of ways and the author of Hebrews is going to unpack that reality uh, in this second chapter and when we think about the reality that God is in fact one of us there's a certainty and a comfort that comes in knowing that he is with us In being one of us, we don't have to live with a felt absence of God, but rather we can live with a known and experienced presence of Him. So I don't know how you come this morning or how you're listening to this message. Maybe you come this morning and God does in fact feel quite distant or absent. I want to say it's okay for you to feel that way. Or maybe you're coming this morning and you've grown up in church and, you know, God's kind of here nor there, or sometimes he feels near, sometimes he feels distant. It's okay too. But I think what the author of Hebrews is seeking to do for this congregation that he's writing to, I think he's seeking to help them realize how near God actually is in the person of Jesus. So that's what I want to talk about this morning And here we are in the middle of chapter 2, and we have to recognize that uh, the author is building on an argument that he's been making since the beginning of chapter 1. And in chapter 1, he's been going on and on about how Jesus is greater than the angels, which is quite an amazing thought when you think about it. Angels, these angelic beings, these heavenly messengers of God, the ones that the, the Jews believed delivered the law to Moses through angels, so Man, if Jesus is bigger than the angels or greater than the angels, that is a remarkable claim. That is an amazing thing. But then here at the, in, within chapter 2, we get to this point in verse 9 where he says that the one who is greater than the angels became lower than them. It's kind of an interesting interruption to his argument. You know, Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the angels. And these are all the amazing reasons why. But he became lower than the angels. In verse 9 we read, But we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while. Now this reality of Jesus becoming lower than the angels is something that we celebrate every year at Christmas. But I think we often miss how scandalous this actually is. God, the creator of the universe, becoming flesh and blood. We call this the incarnation, which is literally um, putting flesh on. God with flesh on. This was a ridiculous idea in the ancient Near East. This would have been a ridiculous idea to the Roman culture. Deities do not become men. But we have in the person of Jesus, God coming down to us, putting skin on, being one of us. Now it's interesting when we think about how this plays out, because compared to most religions, we do see a stark contrast here. You know, we might be able to reduce religion to this idea of, of human beings attempting to get close to God. As if God is at the top of a mountain, and humans are at the bottom, and we're just trying to work our way towards God. Or this picture of a chasm between humanity and God, and we're just trying to get across. And if we look at most of the major religions of the world, it seems that their belief system and their practices are about climbing this ladder towards God, or moving up the mountain towards God. But here's the amazing, scandalous thing about the Incarnation. And here is the good news of Christianity, is that God does not expect us to climb the mountain. He knows that we cannot. And so he came down the mountain. In the person of Jesus Christ, God came down the mountain, coming near to us. He steps into our need and does for us what we could not do for ourselves. In the language of our text this morning in verse 10, we see that Jesus is our pioneer. He became lower than the angels so that he could make a way for us. You might ask, well, make a way into what? Well, last week, Pastor Norv, at the first half of chapter 2, he looked at how Psalm chapter 8 is quoted by the By the author. In Psalm chapter 8, there's some debate around what it's talking about, but Norb took us back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, 27, and this idea that men and women were created to rule and reign with God. We were created to have dominion. And Psalm chapter 8 speaks almost to the frustration of that experience for humanity, that we don't actually get to enter into that. But here we have Jesus coming down the mountain becoming a man, doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we have Jesus fulfilling the destiny laid out in Psalm chapter 8, being crowned with glory and honor, everything being put under his feet. The only way he could live into the reality of what it means to be human was to become a human. And in that way, Jesus was our pioneer He came and he lived among us so that he could lead us, that he could go before us. You know, I was thinking about this whole picture. You know, last week we got uh, a bit of snow and uh, it reminded me of when I was a kid and um, I, I always had to walk to school, whether it was minus five or minus 30, my parents would bundle me up, send me to school. And those mornings where there was lots of snow, I remember trudging through the snow all the way to school. And I'd get to this big fence, and there was a hole in the fence. I'd climb through the hole, and the field was just full of snow. But it was the fastest way to get to the school was to cross the field. And as a little kid in winter, you'd look for the path. Where had another kid gone before me? And I would find that path, and I'd start walking in it. And by the end of the day, that path was so broken down because so many kids had walked in it before. But the reality is, is that one kid had to walk in that path first had to go before all the others to make a way for everyone that was going to come before them to have an easier way to get across the field and to the school. That one kid becomes the pioneer. And so here Hebrews is describing Jesus, the pioneer of our salvation, who is showing us what it means to be fully human, who is demonstrating for us what it looks like to live into the destiny of what we were made and created for, and he goes the way. And then it's amazing in the Gospels, because what's Jesus' invitation over and over again? Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Jesus, the pioneer of our salvation. And this was God's plan. This is his hope to come to us, to make a way for us. This word perfect in verse 10 is not talking about Jesus as if he was somehow morally imperfect and had to be made perfect. It's speaking to this idea of completeness, that what God had purpose to do in Jesus, he accomplished it through the suffering of Christ on the cross, and a way was made for us. Now the rest of chapter 2 explores what Jesus accomplished in becoming one of us. And you'll have to bear with me. I feel so much tension in preaching through Hebrews because I feel like I'm giving a theology lecture as if we're all in Bible school, um, opening our Bibles and learning. Uh, But we want to be faithful to the text. And so um, our teachings are going to have a bit more of that field. So please bear with me. But this morning, I want to speak to how this chapter uh, talks about what Jesus accomplished in becoming one of us. And our roadmap this morning, we're going to look at three different words. The first is family. The second is freedom. And the third is redemption. Family, freedom, and redemption. So let's jump into this. What did Jesus accomplish in becoming one of us? First, family. Jesus made the way for us to become holy. um, Verses here, totally lost my spot. Verse 11, but the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them Brothers and sisters, So here we have the author emphasizing this idea of holiness. Uh, now holiness is a big theme within scripture. Uh, we can think about moral purity. Uh, we can think about a God who is just set apart or different than us, other than us. And while we could spend all day unpacking what holiness is, I just want to summarize it and say that holiness is what God is, okay? God is holy, perfect in every single way. Now, verse 11 here recognizes that you and I, we are naturally unholy. We are not holy. We don't have that trait intrinsic to us in the way that God has that as a trait of him. But it's his desire that his people be made holy. Throughout the Old Testament and specifically in the law, we read about God making his people holy and his desire to make his people holy. And I want to look at holiness this morning under the theme of family to say that holiness is God's family trait. If holiness is to be what God is, that that is what he is like, those who are in his family are also need to be holy, need to bear his resemblance in that way. And I just, something I love when I see families is when you look at a family, you just know that, man, those people are related, Right? The kids look like their parents when they smile, they just look just like their mother or or whatever characteristics that they have. I'm one of those kids who looks nothing like my parents, and me and my brother look nothing alike, so I sometimes wonder if I'm adopted, but um, I can work that out with a therapist. Um, But me and my brother, we don't have a lot of likeness between us, but then you get into some of the nuances of us, the way we say things, the things we enjoy doing, and suddenly there's a lot of similarities. Or I'll say something, or I'll hear my brother say something. I'm like, that sounds just like me. We have the same traits. We are of the same family. And so here we have in Hebrews this emphasis of Jesus going ahead of us, becoming one of us so that he can make us holy. He can give us this family trait of being holy. And what's the result of it? He's not ashamed to call us sisters and brothers. Wow. Wow. God, the maker of the universe. Jesus, God with flesh on, looking at you and me, saying, hey, brother, hey, sister. Do you know how mind-blowing that is? God coming near to us, as near as family. So Jesus, the Holy One, pioneers the way for us to be made holy, making us family. And this is celebrated through two Old Testament references, which are a little bit confusing and lost on us. One of them is about God's victory, and the other one is about God's promise. So if you're following along in your Bibles, uh, in verse 12, we have Psalm 22 uh, being quoted. And Psalm 22, the emphasis, I believe, that the author is going for here is on God's victory. And so the quote we have is, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. Now, when we're reading Hebrews and other New Testament documents, when the Old Testament is quoted, it's really important for us to go consider what's going on there, Uh, because the author assumes that they aren't just thinking about this verse, but the entirety of the passage. You know, if I was to start singing a song like, row, row, row your boat, you guys could finish it, right? Gently down. Yeah, see, you guys know, if I say, row, row, row your boat, you're like, you know, the rest of it. Twinkle, twinkle. Twinkle. See, you guys know it. Very good, very good. We're getting interactive this morning. So in the same way, when the author of Hebrews is saying, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters, the uh, the audience that he's talking to immediately think, and this is going to sound weird, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What? what? That's how Psalm 22 starts. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Psalm 22... If we had time, we'd go through it, but it journeys through this picture of someone who is suffering, someone who feels like God is so far off, someone who feels destitute. But then we get to this verse that's referenced in Hebrews, and it's the hinge verse, and the psalm turns on its head, and suddenly God is nearer than he's ever been before, and suddenly the declaration of this destitute, despised, and lonely person is one of declaring the victory and the triumph of God. That's the movement of Psalm 22. And if you're familiar with your New Testament, you know Psalm 22 is also quoted by who? By Jesus from the cross. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so here, we're being ushered into the victory and triumph of Jesus on the cross. We're being entered into the the victory of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to declare the victory of God among who? My brothers and my sisters. I'm not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. Why? Well, I think that gets us into the second quote, which is from Isaiah chapter 8. Now, both the verses here that are quoted, I, I believe, again, the emphasis is on God fulfilling his promises, Um, And so these two, I will put my trust in him, and again he says, here I am, the children God has given me, are both in Isaiah chapter 8. And the context of Isaiah chapter 8 is interesting because Judah is under threat of war. And there's all these enemies and there's rumors of war and all these different things. And in the midst of the threats and rumors of war, God comes to Isaiah and he makes Isaiah a promise that God is going to deliver them, that God is going to take care of them. And so we have Isaiah, at the end of Isaiah chapter 8, making this declaration to the people, I'm going to put my trust in God. I can trust His promises. And what's neat about Here I Am and the children God has given me is at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah has a baby. And that baby is given a name that is, um, which is attached to a promise that God has given Isaiah. And so here we have this You know, the author of Hebrews is putting these words in the mouth of Jesus. I will put my trust in Him. Over and above every plan, over and above any conspiracy, our trust is in God and His victory and His work and His deliverance. And he says again, here I am in the children God has given me. He's saying, God is going to fulfill these promises. And this declaration, here I am, here I stand with the fulfillment of the promise. Now, this might sound confusing, but when Jesus rises again from the, from the grave, and people are coming to him, putting their trust in him, becoming part of the family of God. Jesus stands among us as brothers and sisters and declares, isn't God victorious? Isn't God amazing? He has made you holy. He has redeemed you. He has made you family. Friends, Jesus makes us holy, then he calls us brothers and sisters. If you ever feel like you don't belong, If you ever feel like God is far off, if you ever feel overwhelmed by loneliness, that is not God's heart or his message to you. His heart and his message is one of family, that you belong to him, that he loves you, that he's going to come after you and be victorious in your life to restore you to himself if you let him. So what did Jesus accomplish in becoming one of us? He made us family. Second, Jesus accomplished freedom. He made a way for us to free us from death. Hebrews goes on that since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Okay, so this is going to be a quick theology lesson. You guys ready? Let's buckle up. Death was never part of God's plan for us as human beings, okay? Death was never part of the plan. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit um, in the garden and they sinned against God, God had told them, if you eat this fruit, you shall surely die. And it was at that entrance of sin, that choosing to eat of the fruit, that sin and death entered the world. Now Hebrews is assuming, and we, I believe scripture affirms, um, that the power of death is held by the devil. And I don't have a ton of time to get into that, but we need to recognize that Jesus calls the devil the ruler of this world. Paul calls him the God of this age. And the reality is that death, the, the, the power of the devil in death, is what keeps us as humans from properly entering into our destiny as humans to to. Be, uh, to be crowned with glory and honor and to rule and reign with the Father. We cannot do that because of death. Death keeps us down. And it's interesting, too, to read here that this idea of slavery to death, that we come under submission to it. So we cannot rule and reign when we are in submission to something else. So death is a significant human problem, something that keeps us from living in the life that Jesus has for us, especially the fear of death. When we live constantly afraid, we can't enter into the life that Jesus has for us. And so Jesus has to become a man to conquer death. And what's so cool, what we see happen here, is that in Jesus' case, death was not the consequence of his rebellion. So death came into the world because Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, and death was a consequence. But in the case of Jesus, death was an expression of obedience to the will of God. Hope you're tracking with me. So where Adam and Eve's sin brought death into the world, Jesus, out of obedience and love for the Father, endured death. And this disarmed the devil's power over death in Jesus' case. So in becoming a human and suffering death willingly in obedience to the Father, The devil was defeated in regards to his power of death. It was an expression of obedience of Jesus to do God's will. So this caused the devil's power over death in the case of Jesus to be absolutely powerless. And we see that three days later when Jesus rises from the dead. So because of Jesus, we don't have to be afraid of death. Those of us who are in Christ, who are in Jesus, share in his victory over death. That Jesus' victory over death becomes our victory over death. That as we can declare death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? And this should bring us incredible hope. We read in the New Testament passages like 1 Thessalonians in chapter 1, it says, that why we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Why? So we don't have to fear death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul spends a lot of time talking about how significant and powerful the resurrection is. And he's, he basically says that if the resurrection isn't true, if Jesus didn't actually conquer death, then we as Christians should be pitied over all people. Because then we have no hope. But Jesus did conquer death. And he invites us to follow him, to be in Christ. And as we are, we too conquer death with him because of the victory that he has accomplished on the cross. So, friends, if you ever live under the fear of death, you don't have to. Hebrews teaches us that we have been freed from the fear of death, and we can hope in the resurrection. We sang about it this morning, that Jesus has conquered death. And we trust in him and look to him. So, um, what did Jesus accomplish in becoming one of us? Family, freedom, and thirdly, redemption. Um, yeah, chapter 2 is just so full of this incarnation stuff. You know, in, um, in verse 11, we have the emphasis of, of Jesus being made like them. In verse 14, that he shared in his humanity. And here in verse 17, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. So Jesus makes a way for us to be restored to God. So here in Hebrews, this is the first mention of the phrase high priest. And it's one of 17 occurrences, so we have 16 more to go. So this is a theme that will be revisited again and again. But very simply, the high priest in the Old Testament uh, was one among uh, many priests who was kind of the lead or head priest, the high priest. Um, Now the priests priests were people who mediated between the, the general population and God. So there was this understanding that there was this chasm that existed and the sacrificial system was working on behalf of the people to help bridge that gap just a little bit. And the priests were in service to both God and to the people and they were the ones who administered the sacrifices um, and and, and tended to the temple as a way uh, to to minister to the presence of God in the midst of the people. So among the priests was the high priest. And the the lineage of the high priest would pass from generation to, to generation. But Jesus, he didn't die, right? Well, he, he died, but he rose again, ascended into heaven, and now he sits eternally resurrected and remains the eternal high priest, ministering between us and God. And I just love the adjectives that are used in Hebrews, that he is merciful and faithful. That when he looks at us and sees us in our sins, in our missteps, He is merciful to us. And that when we think that we've sinned just too many times and we keep dropping the ball over and over again, he is faithful to the task. Now what does Jesus do as a high priest where we're told that he makes atonement? This is one of those theological churchy words that we don't use anywhere else other than when we're in church. And then most of the time when we use it in church, we're only pretending to understand what it means. Um, But atonement is simply the process by which people remove obstacles to, to their reconciliation with God. So in the Old Testament, animals were sacrificed on behalf of the people. And the understanding was that the blood of the animals would cover over the sins of the people. And the obstacle of sin that was between the people and God was then removed. Their sins were atoned for. And their relationship with God was made right again. But Jesus, in the New Testament, becomes that sacrifice for us. That the blood of Jesus, which we sang about this morning, covers our sins, our brokenness, our rebellion. And it atones for those sins and that which separates us from God, bringing us back into relationship with God. With Jesus as the merciful high priest, we are redeemed. We are brought back to God, restored to Him. So friends, if you ever think you're not good enough, if you ever think that you don't deserve it, well, you don't. That's why we need mercy and grace. If you ever wonder, why should God love me? Why should God care for me? Know that Jesus stands as your merciful and faithful high priest. So friends, you see, Jesus became one of us and he made a way for us to be brought into the family, to be free from death and to be restored to God. So if you ever wonder, is he near? Where is he? Is he distant? Is he far off? We can trust and believe that yes, he is near. The incarnation, Jesus coming to us, as a person, testifies to his nearness, testifies to the reality that when we feel far off, God wants to be near. And then having ascended into heaven, God sends the Holy Spirit, his presence on earth, ministering within us, with us, no matter our circumstances. He is with us. The question for you this morning is, do you know him? Joan Osborne's song, One of Us, has this very interesting line that says, If God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see it if seeing meant believing? I think that line is so confronting. If we were to actually see God, if all of our doubts and hesitations were settled through one interaction, well, I guess God really does exist. (laughs) It would confront everything about our lives. Because if God exists, and he does, that has to inform the way we live our lives. It has to. But friends, he came near to us in the person of Jesus. He wants to know you. These verses here in Hebrews this morning proclaim to us the love of God. It's not a wishy-washy love but one that endures through hardship. It's a love that is committed to the end. It is a love that God had for us so much that he did not hold back his one and only son from coming to bring us back into the family, to work redemption. And friends, it cost him something. Verse 10 talks about the suffering that Jesus had to endure in order to accomplish all of these things. So do you know him? he wants to know you. And coming to know him is as simple as a prayer. And just reaching out to God in words. Inviting him to come and speak. Giving him your life. Following him. If you have questions about this, there'll be people sitting around brunch tables and, and a staff here at TCC who would love to explore those questions with you. The second question that I think arises is, do you know that he is with you? the end of our chapter, uh, we read that because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now we're going to talk more about this concept in chapter 4. The author of Hebrews goes more into this idea. Uh, For for us this morning, as it comes off the heels of these, these strong messages about the incarnation, it is a powerful reminder to us that Jesus is with us. That when he sees us in difficulty, when he sees us suffering, he not only sees it, but he relates to it. And he wants to be with us in the midst of it. He is able to help those who are being tempted. He is able to be near to us. Do you know this help? Do you experience him as a brother? I loved in my studies this past week, it felt so irreverent, but I just had this picture of Jesus, like, walking up to me, putting his arm around my shoulders, and, hey, bro. And what a picture. I'm not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. Do you know that affection and love of Jesus, your brother? It invites us to look to Jesus, as Pastor Norb was talking about earlier, It invites us to be with him, to worship, to pray, to open the word of God and hear him speak through his word. And I think one of the reasons we don't tend to experience God's presence is that we don't choose to turn our eyes to Jesus. We don't choose to turn our hearts and our minds towards him. Instead, we choose to dwell on our present difficulties or circumstances. We fix our minds upon hardship or entertainment or things that will distract us rather than turning our minds towards Jesus. And then we wonder, why is he so distant? But friends, God has given us prayer as a vehicle to be with him. Now, all these theological ideas from Hebrews chapter 2 can be difficult for us to wrap our minds around. Uh, but we'll be revisiting them throughout this series. But this morning, I want to invite you to journey with us um, into deeper reflection through fasting. Um, as Pastor Dorb mentioned, we're headed into the season of Lent. It begins on Valentine's Day, so you can get some ash on your forehead, then go on a date. It sounds interesting. Um, it's a unique year in that way. Um, but Lent begins on Wednesday. And Lent gives us this opportunity to reflect more intentionally on the suffering of Jesus. Again, in verse 10 of our text, the pioneer of their salvation uh, was made perfect through what he suffered. Lent invites us to reflect on that reality. And that as we reflect on it, to respond through repentance. And friends, when we consider all that Christ has done, when we consider the sacrifice that he paid for us, that he brought us back into the family, that he gave us freedom, that he redeemed us. It should compel us to follow him, no matter the cost. Now, in fasting, we allow ourselves to feel discomfort. We feel that discomfort, and instead of avoiding it or running away from it, we lean into it. That discomfort prompts us to pray, prompts us to give thanks, and to receive with joy the bread of heaven, the word of God, which proclaims you are family, you are free, you are restored. I Invite the worship team to come forward. And so, I just encourage you this season of Lent. How might you engage with it? How might you be more intentional? Again, the fasting invitation um, is a 24-hour fast that would begin either on Wednesday night or on Thursday nights. If you're on Team Norb, it begins on Wednesday nights after supper and runs all the way till Thursday supper. If you're on Team Adam, it begins Thursday night after supper, running all the way till Friday uh, supper. And it's just an invitation um, for you to join with us uh, in this ancient practice of fasting. We can enter into, in just a small taste, uh, the suffering of Jesus. And allow that reflection uh, to do a work on, in our hearts. Let's um, invite you to stand as we pray and then sing together. Yeah, Father God, this chapter of Scripture is just so rich. And it is hard to wrap our minds around the reality that you, Father God, in your sovereignty and wisdom, sent your son to become a man, to be one of us, that we might be brought back to you, that we might be made holy and be considered part of your family, that we might be freed, that we might be restored and redeemed. And so, Lord, this morning, however we come, help us to receive that truth. Lord, help these ideas to move from our heads to our hearts. Help us to see you, Jesus, as one who is more than enough, who is greater than, who invites us to abundant life. Lord, help us to follow you and to experience the belonging that comes from being part of your family the freedom that comes in knowing you, the redemption that comes in knowing you. Help us to experience it, we pray. We just say we love you, we worship you, Lord Jesus. Amen.